0: In this episode, Jamie's Jim Henson memory falls victim to the Mandela effect, and Natalie gets uncomfortable when Arsenio interviews Kermit the Frog. Plus, awkward burgers are served when none other than Michael Jackson crashes Arsenio's interview with Eddie Murphy. Stay tuned! From the East Coast of these United States, as far from Melrose Avenue as two people can be without falling into the Atlantic Ocean, this is Growing Up in the Dog Pound, props to Arsenio Hall with Jamie and Natalie. Like that, we travel back in time to Boston College, nineteen eighty-eight to nineteen ninety-two. So, you know, I want to give people um, a chance to understand what Boston College was was like for us, what it meant for us to be there, and there are a lot of different things that it meant. Um, This one story that I have won't won't cover them all, but one of the um, the first really meaningful experiences I had there in terms of a classroom experience. I had a, a seminar class with a, a Jesuit priest, Father John Howard. We I remember Father
1: Howard. Father Howard.
0: <laughs> Hard to forget. He was very involved with all of us. I think there were maybe 12 of us in the class. And um, the name of the class was Western Cultural Tra- Tradition. So it was a big topic. And I I really got a lot out of this class. I got a lot out of Father Howard. It turned out that he was the priest that actually um, married us, Jay and me at our wedding. Mm -hmm. So obviously, he meant a lot to me. And one of the things he did that, you know, I doubt that you'd find at another university, maybe you would, but this was my special moment. It was uh, spring of 89, just around the time of these episodes. And he said at Toward the the middle of class, he said, "Oh, uh, by the way, we're going to end class a little a little early today, ten minutes early, and we'll go down the hall. And I I have uh, something a gift to give to all of you." He said, "Today is an important day for all of you." He says, "Not so important for me, but I know it is for you, and I want to honor that." So we were, you know, kind of curious. And ten minutes before the end of class, we walked down the hall. This this class was in the um, Gasson Hall, which is a gorgeous building in the middle of the BC Quad. So we walked down the hall, and there's a piano. And he says, Father Howard says, today is a, a sad day. Someone that's very important to all of you has died, and that is Jim Henson. And I know that Sesame Street was a big part of your childhood, and I want to commemorate that. And so he played on the piano Ernie's Rubber Ducky song.
1: That is so sweet. Oh, my gosh. It's such a thoughtful gesture. I
0: am a terrible singer. I fully sang. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Like by yourself?
0: No, I'm sure he was encouraging us all to sing. But it could have been by myself because I loved Sesame Street so much that That really was an important moment to me. And I thought it was a thousand percent appropriate that he would want to take the time to do this. And also, you know, clearly very nice. But at that point, I knew him well enough that I I don't say I took that for granted. But I already knew that he was very caring and and thoughtful about all of us. That's
1: amazing that he even had the, 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 you know, the, the... just for him to have been so thoughtful and and conscientious about that and to have taken the time to do that. It's just so sweet, you know? I
0: know. And it's, it's a lot of what I liked about BC because in not all classes, I mean, you can't have that kind of experience all the time, but many times I really felt like the instructors we had there were interested in seeing us do well.
1: Yes, I agree that we had, you know, people who were invested and caring. And uh, I love that story. You'll never forget that moment.
0: No, I won't. I I have a funny story for the end of this episode to do with remembering that moment. But I'll leave it for the end. For now, uh, we'll just conclude there and recall Father Howard and Rubber Ducky. (laughs) I like that.
1: Love it. (laughs)
0: All right so on this segment of uh, Arsenio he welcomes his friend probably his best friend Eddie Murphy
1: Yeah at the time they were really close buddies that was it was great yep. to see their interaction how comfortable they were with each other
0: Yeah for sure so at the uh, occasion for this is that Eddie is promoting Harlem Nights his new movie and they start the appearance with a movie clip that I thought was kind of strange, to be honest with you. They don't introduce the clip, so you don't know what's coming. And it's Della Reese and Eddie Murphy kind of in a back alley, uh, slapping or punching each other. I'm not sure. It's, to me, it was a strange movie clip.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I, I guess it would be interesting to see why he thought that that would be a good way to promote the movie, Um like is was that the best part of the movie or something it was it was kind of a bizarre way to sort of I mean because I would think that he would think about you know what what is it that I want to you know what clip do I want to show to really garner interest in this movie and it's just strange that he he thought that that was the best representation but
0: yeah and he had uh, Richard Pryor and Red Fox in the movie you think he would use a, a clip with them
1: yeah I agree I agree with that um but what I found interesting was just, you know, when, when they, at the beginning of the show, when they both just came out and how Eddie Murphy was looking, he was looking good. You know, he was.
0: Yeah, he comes out, he's wearing um kind of a black suit, although it's, it has a zipper instead of any buttons So it's really 90s or late 80s. And I thought he looked great.
1: Yeah, he looked great with some leather. I don't know. He had like a leather something or other underneath. um And yeah. It, the jacket had leather sleeves, red and black.
0: And I remember thinking like, wow, that is really well tailored. Like he looks super comfortable.
1: Yeah, I, I agree. He looked great. Um, And it was just great to see that rapport, just that easy, you know, that they felt quite comfortable with each other. And, and they would, they were teasing, you know, teasing each other. And, and it was nice to see that, that interaction. Um, And well, I was, you know, I was actually surprised to learn that that was his first uh, directing effort. That Har- Harlem Nights was his the first movie that he ever directed. Um, I did not know that previously, and it was good to see him talking about that. Um, yeah,
0: I think it's his first and only, right?
1: Yeah, from what I understand that that was it. I mean, I think that movie must have done pretty well, but I, I don't know if he just thought, you know, why he didn't want to direct anymore, if, or if there were other projects that were more interesting to him. And that's why he never ventured back into directing. Uh, but it was interesting to learn that. Um,
0: it doesn't seem like it was totally enjoyable for him because Arsenio asks him how it was to direct. And he says, it wasn't as much fun as I thought it was going to be.
1: Yeah, that that answer actually really surprised me that he said that. But then, you know, I can kind of understand, uh, you know, for me, when I watch movies, I love to see the, you know, dramatic, you know, the interaction between characters and and I'm really interested in, in the words that are chosen, you know, the, the, the words that the actors play with. So I can kind of understand what Eddie means when he says that some aspects of it weren't as fun because he said that, for example, that when it comes to directing, that it's not just about the scene between the characters, it's also about like, you know, how is the, the picture positioned or how is this positioned? And and those are like minor, you know, those are details that not everybody would find very interesting. So I can see where he, he thought like, oh, do I really have to think about the lighting and where things are positioned? You know, I could see where that wouldn't be as interesting to him if he was more uh, focused on the interactions between characters and the plot line and all of that stuff. So I I, I could see where where he might, feel that some you know some aspects of it weren't fun
0: yeah for sure uh it might just been not um not up his alley so to speak but as the the interview went on i thought at uh, first i thought well this is um a kind of a chill interview these are two best friends and it's like they're hanging out at home and that could be but the more i watched the more i thought he seems kind of sad eddie murphy in this and or subdued anyway more than i would have thought and i um I did a little reading and I I found that it wasn't the easiest thing in the world for him to work with Richard Pryor in that movie. Oh, interesting. The, yeah, Richard Pryor had been diagnosed with MS, multiple sclerosis around that time. And you can see it too in the in the movie, uh, publicity he looks very thin.
1: Yeah, he did look he did look pretty thin and yeah, I had heard about his troubles and and um Yeah, I'm surprised. I know that they I know I had read that Eddie, uh, you know, that they developed a really strong bond, but that eventually Eddie got the sense that perhaps Richard Pryor could have been threatened by his success, uh, could have seen him as competition, Um, even though Richard had Richard Pryor has built up quite a legacy. I think he saw, you know, he you know, he felt that natural competitive urge with Eddie, you know, because Eddie is is a huge star in his own right. So, um, so I, I guess I can see where, where maybe that those were the beginnings of certain certain troubles that they uh, that they could have had.
0: Yeah, uh, Eddie has actually spoken about it on the record and said that um, at the time, maybe both he and Richard Pryor felt that America would celebrate one black comedian at a time, and where it had been Richard Pryor. You can even see if you look at some of the stills for this movie, Eddie's now out in front, you know, and, and Richard Pryor's taking a bit of a back seat.
1: Right, right. So, you know, it's a shame, you know, sometimes, uh, you know, it, it's a shame that that had to be part of their relationship history. But at the same time, uh, for Eddie, and he mentioned it during the interview. Uh, when Arsenio asked him about his relationship with Richard Pryor and what he felt about having Richard Pryor participate, you know, Eddie did say, you know, he was my idol. I grew up watching him. Uh, so there was that level of respect for Richard, the great, you know, in his mind, the great Richard Pryor. So, it, you know, at least he got that experience, even if everything wasn't as perfect in terms of, you know, how their relationship evolved, at least he got the experience of working with him And he did enjoy, you know, working with him.
0: Yeah, for sure. And um, then I got all deep, you know, like you do. And I was thinking about Richard Pryor and maybe he was our age around 50 or so. I think that'd be about right. And here he gets MS, which is a very frustrating disease, comes and goes and unpredictable and can really make it very difficult for you to work. And if that were me right now or any anyone who's tried to make a career at something. I think that would be a big blow to, to have thought that you're going to have years ahead in your career. And and who knows, maybe the sky's the limit. And then you get a disease that really hits you in the gut. You know, I, I can imagine that he would be just resentful, period, not even really to do with Eddie Murphy.
1: Yeah, I agree with that. And, you know, to his credit, I mean, looks like he pushed himself to work, even though he didn't feel you know, great. And his, certainly his health was declining, but he pushed himself to, to, to work and, and, uh, and he, anything he does, I mean, these are great talents. So anything he does, it's, you know, it's going to be great work. But, um, but yeah, I I would imagine that his illness definitely came into play.
0: I do think the movie was relatively well received. So it probably wasn't a, a total dud of an experience, but just maybe not what either one of them would have imagined.
1: Right. I mean, I mean, it still made money. It's just it's interesting that uh that you got that sense that perhaps Eddie, you know, wasn't, you know, that it wasn't a, an experience that was all the way a, a you know, a happy experience for him that there were some lows throughout throughout the process um and uh yeah, no, it's interesting stuff. I also liked what I liked a, about Eddie during that interview was to you know, see his vulnerability and, you know, especially when he talked about Damon Wayans and and uh Arsenio asked him, Would you consider going back to comedy? And Eddie said, You know, I've I've thought about going back to comedy, but when I go out to comedy clubs and I see great talent like Damon Waying Wayans, I you know, that that makes me think about whether I really want to do it anymore, or whether I'm good enough to do it. And it was nice to see that vulnerability, that sort of you know, saying, you know, that just sort of showing us like, hey, I'm human, just like everybody else. And I have my doubts. And I wonder whether, you know, I could be good enough to do that again. So it was nice to see that moment. And and also, it's like, it must must have been a major ego boost for Damon Wayans to hear Eddie Murphy, talk about him in that way.
0: Yeah, especially since he sounded so sincere, when he said it, it wasn't like he was just, you know, trying to throw a compliment just to be kind. He was really saying that he he thought Damon Wayans was funnier than he was. And it struck me because I always, I assumed wrongly that Eddie Murphy with, you know, by virtue of his persona, that he would be probably somewhat arrogant or, um, you know, cocky, but no, he wasn't at all. And even, you know, we were talking about how he described his experience in Harlem nights. He was, honest with Arsenio. He didn't have to be. He could have said, oh, it was a blast. I can't wait to direct again. No, he kind of let on that it it wasn't all he thought.
1: Yeah. And I wonder if if it had to do with the nature of their relationship, that he felt comfortable enough to just kind of let him know exactly what he was feeling. You know, like, I wonder if that also came into play. But I appreciated, you know, that he was just being honest. He was being funny. He was being Eddie. But then there were moments where he's just being real. He's just being like, Anybody else just admitting any kind of insecurities he he might feel? Um, so it was nice to see that, especially with the whole incident with the uh, with the uh, billboard with his album and what he described as snot being thrown at the billboard of his album. Um, yeah, that was a, a funny. That was moment. funny.
0: So yeah, he, people forget that he has an interest in music, and I, you and I, think he's pretty good. But um, apparently, he had. Uh, a billboard in probably LA for uh, an album that he had out in the time at the time. And some people were throwing garbage at it and he said, it looked like snot on his nose and you know, how appropriate that that's how that would end up because he was kind of insecure about his, his music.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he uh, you know, it it was interesting to, to hear that side of it. And, 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 and it's funny to see that, you know, like I remember the early hits with uh, Eddie Murphy, I'll Spare You the Singing, but Party All the Time. I mean, I love that song. It's a, a catchy song. And I think it did relatively well, but apparently not well enough for him to have continued with, you know, trying to produce more albums. I don't think he produced any album beyond that one album, which uh, I believe was entitled So Happy. I might yep. Think. So,
0: yeah, I don't think he did either, although he might have and maybe they just weren't very successful because he does say that they... Uh, built a studio in his house. So he he intended to produce more.
1: Yes, he did mention that. And I thought, oh, he must have really thought about music long term, but then perhaps it, it just didn't, you know, didn't quite turn out the way that he wanted.
0: Yeah, I feel like it, we it might, it could be another area too where he was really sensitive to people's criticism. I think people are predisposed when someone from one area of entertainment tries to sing or tries to act when they're really a singer and, and people judge. And I know he, he's mentioned that he got some bad feedback. And to me, it just seems so sensitive through the whole interview that I thought, maybe, you know, if he doesn't get uh, positive reinforcement, he doesn't continue with something.
1: Right, right. I mean, it, it's uh, like all of us, you know, I mean, we want to feel like, you know, uh, it, it's hard to get beyond the negativity for sure. But, you know, it's it's interesting now that you brought that up, I thought about the confidence that he projected. Uh, and that uh, brings to mind that part of the interview when Arsenio asked him, who does Eddie Murphy go to for advice? And I was yep. I was really struck by the answer. Uh, and he said, you know, I don't take anybody's advice. You know, I, I listen to my own instincts and go, you know, and I trust that and I don't I don't think at 28, I could have been, a, you know, I was able to say something like that, that I could just sort of confidently say, I trust my own instincts, and there's nobody I need to seek out for any advice. So that was, that was pretty interesting to see, to hear.
0: Yeah, people forget that he was on Saturday Night Live at like age 18. And he had been doing stand up since he was 16. And apparently, he mentioned that he got some, he asked for advice when he was 16. And he got some feedback that wasn't positive at the time from a comedy store owner. And from then on, he just stopped asking for advice. And I, you know, I get it. If someone gives you advice, it's not particularly helpful. Why are you going to try that again? If you know that you want to do something, why ask for advice if if it's just going to get you down?
1: Right. I mean, I just think, you know, he had the confidence to do it at such a young age and, you know, and he trusted it and he believed in it. That's the whole thing he had faith in and life you know showed you know he had the 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 he he was able to benefit from the from the rewards of working hard and and just going with it and just having that talent um but yeah that was a, an interesting moment and i also enjoyed the part of the interview when arsenio asked him about his fascination with elvis presley and yeah that was a funny little piece wasn't it <laughs> it was it was and i i i enjoyed the response that he had he said you know Perhaps, you know, like he, he mentioned Michael Jackson, and he said, you know, Michael Jackson is probably more famous, but I don't know that anybody has as much presence as Elvis, and that I've always been drawn. He said, I've always been drawn to his presence. Um, and it was interesting to hear that. And... And also insightful to hear, like, you know, it's because we all know this to be true, just because we've learned about Elvis over time, you know, that the Eddie described it as there was a war going on inside him. But you could never tell that because all you could see was that smooth, you know, presence, that charismatic presence, and um, that he found that pretty inspiring. And uh, I yeah, thought that was he, interesting. Yeah, he goes
0: on to say, you know, how little he has in, in common with Elvis, like nothing at all. <laughs> and yet he can still <laughs> he can still see that attraction that so many people saw.
1: Yeah, yeah, most definitely. And I, I, I you know, and, and he does a great impersonation, by the way. I thought that was really funny that he did that during I agree. the show.
0: So speaking of Michael Jackson. Michael. <laughs> this interview takes a weird turn about two thirds of the way through. Uh, Arsenio and, and Eddie are chatting it up. And then we see a figure wandering onto the stage from stage right. <laughs> oh
1: yeah, it was almost like it was a ghost appearing out of the nowhere. It was it was kind of strange. Um, yeah, what did what did you think about Michael's energy and uh, you know how he communicated stuff? Was it a little strange?
0: <laughs> well, they they make a joke later that you know I'm sure you all thought that was a lookalike at first.
1: <laughs> is
0: that of really michael you
1: did.
0: <laughs> of course you did because there were a lot of michael lookalikes and i think at that time too lookalikes were more of a common thing we don't see them quite as much anymore
1: yeah no they were uh, i i you actually you re- i'm not going to digress too much but i re- i don't know that you know this story jamie but back when i was 15 years old uh we went on a family trip my dad my sisters my mom we went to hollywood california did i ever tell you that
0: I remember that. That was a highlight for you.
1: Well, we went we w- went to the Hollywood Walk of Fame. We walked along that that street. So that's a huge highlight right there because I'm already like a starstruck youngin. I'm still st- very much in awe of like celebrities and all of that stuff. And I look across the street and there is like a real, like somebody who like really looks like Michael Jackson. And it's one of those people who impersonate Michael or go around looking like Michael, you know, but you know, I'm just a kid. So I'm thinking, my God, it looks just like Michael. (laughs) And we're in Hollywood, right? So it's gotta be Michael Jackson. And I just kept looking at him and I wanted, and I, I never got really close to him, but I just kept looking at him. Like, what if it's Michael? And of course it wasn't, but. You know, in that <laughs> moment, I just thought, I'm here. I'm, you know, and Michael was huge at the time that that we went on this trip. So for me, it would have been everything to meet him. But anyway, I digressed. <laughs> Michael's presence on Arsenio Hall. Um I I thought it was a little strange the way he just came in and out. But it was I guess I, I'm sure it was a highlight for Eddie to receive any kind of award from the great Michael Jackson. Um,
0: Yeah, so Michael wanders out, like I said, and his outfit is, you know, typical Michael, it's uh, head to toe black with a red uh, shirt, I think underneath and a lot of patent leather, belt buckles all over belt (laughs) buckles on his wrists on his shoulders, just a lot of hardware on this outfit. And truth be told, I saw him wearing this in other appearances, like I, I googled around a little bit in preparation for this. And I saw him wearing that belt buckle jacket at the American Music Awards and other places, too. So apparently, this was a favorite.
1: It it certainly was. I mean, I mean, nothing that I, I mean, it was a typical Michael, you know, dress apparel. I mean, that's like how, you know, he always wanted to sort of be shocking in that way. And he looked good doing it. It's, it always surprises me, like the stuff that Michael could get away with in terms of dress apparel that nobody else could get away with. Um but uh Eddie looked pretty surprised, wouldn't you say?
0: He did, yeah. So it's like I said, Michael wanders out, it's not clear what he's doing. He's holding something, and he eventually manages to say that he has this award to give to Eddie Murphy something along the lines of greatest comedian of all time.
1: Yes. Exactly right. That's what he said. And then But it's not what you
0: would call a uh, an organized or a professional presentation. He's struggling to get words out, and you don't know. The weirdest part is you don't know. Did Michael Jackson just create this award, or is it who who made the decision that Eddie was the greatest comedian of all time? So it's it's a little <laughs> odd. Well, and claimed, Arsenio steps in.
1: I understood that MTV that this was an MTV award, and so that Michael was there to just basically pass on, you know, to, to give him this award on MTV's behalf. Is that is that not what they what the situation was? That's what I understood, but perhaps I was wrong about that. that. Is,
0: no, that is true, but it's only Arsenio that kind of pops in and tries to clean up this presentation and says, actually, this award is from MTV, it's a viewer's choice, blah, blah, blah. And um, you're right, Eddie does look surprised and, um, you know, really pleased with this award. And then
1: Eddie in turn, (laughs) and then they give (laughs) Michael his award for being for having the best video, right? The best video of all time thriller. So it was interesting. It would have been nice for Michael to have, you know, stuck around a little longer, but
0: yeah so eddie dips away and and grabs an award for michael like maybe it's behind the couch or something and tells him that this is for the thriller video the best video so on and so forth and michael just kind of nods and exits stage right like (laughs) maybe (laughs) maybe he says thank you but that's about it there's no
1: acceptance speech at all right now that was that was bizarre I mean, Eddie was happy, I think. And I love how they said after Michael left, and Eddie's like, you feel like the show is over now. Michael left the building. Let's go. <laughs> it right. It was, was a pretty funny uh, exchange there, but.
0: It's true. It was, I wonder what they had planned for that, or or maybe they didn't, maybe they didn't know if Michael would even show. And so they didn't put too much thought into it, but um, it was a strange one.
1: It was. <laughs> Yeah, it was it it, it was also revealing. I I don't know who uh, Eddie was dating at the time, but there was a moment where Arsenio asked Eddie, you know, are you in love? And uh, Eddie reached for his water and said, yeah, and just kind of left it at that. So I'm always I'm curious to know at that time, you know, who who was his love interest? Was it somebody we know? Was it somebody famous? Um, You know, would have been interesting to get more, but I could see that Eddie wasn't going to um, reveal anything.
0: No, and he certainly had enough love interests over the course of his life.
1: Yes, he has. I, you know, learned that he's had 10 children with 5 different women and that he had one long-term rela- uh, marriage. He was married for about 13 years, which I didn't realize. Um, so yeah, he's he's had quite a quite a quite a history. Don't know if he's dating anybody right now, but at the time, it would have been interesting to know who, who he who he was referring to.
0: Yeah, and I, I've read since then that uh, both Eddie and Arsenio only has one child who's also named Arsenio. I mean, if I had that name, I would use it too. But <laughs> both of them seem to be really devoted dads.
1: Yeah, I bet. I bet. It was interesting, too, to ha- to uh, hear the Dr. Ruth reference. Do you remember that segment of the show, Jamie? When uh... I did. I <laughs> caught that. When Eddie Murphy talks about Arsenio's long fingers,
0: <laughs> yes, yeah, everyone has observed that Arsenio Hall has like absurdly long fingers,
1: and uh, and Eddie remarks that uh, he asked Dr. Ruth what it means for for a man to have long fingers, and I don't, I don't think there was a a comment about that. We just it was kind of left your yeah, imagination. Arsenio says, if you
0: have long fingers, it means you have big gloves. <laughs> <laughs>
1: But it was interesting because, you know, that was Dr. Ruth's time. Again, it's it's very, uh, the show just brings you back in a lot of different ways. And at the time, Dr. Ruth had a really popular radio show called Sexually Speaking, which I didn't mm-hmm. realize because I had seen Dr. Ruth on different TV shows, um, you know, but I didn't realize she had a radio show. I didn't really know that much about Dr. Ruth, but she was a pretty big deal in the 80s. We don't hear about her anymore as much, but.
0: You don't, but she is still alive.
1: Yes. She's in her 90s now.
0: I think she had a big role in the 80s, 90s because of AIDS. In addition to just general um, opening of conversation around sex, there was a lot of uh, AIDS prevention type talk that she participated in.
1: Yeah, that's true. I do recall that. It was an interesting exchange. I, I enjoyed it. The The other thing I found fascinating, and I, f- I forgot to mention this before when we were talking about music, was that Herbie Hancock was involved in this movie in uh,
0: Harlem nights, right in
1: Harlem nights. He was responsible for the musical score and in working with Eddie, our senior mentioned during the interview that Herbie Hancock had told him, you know, Eddie's got great musical instincts. Um, he had a, you know, great, great intuition about which music, you know, w- what kind of music matched, what kind of scene. And um So it was interesting to hear that because Herbie Hancock is a great musical talent. And for him to say that about Eddie was an interesting thing to hear, too.
0: Yeah, I agree. Um, Another thing about that movie that almost goes unnoticed is that uh, Arsenio's in the movie
1: and they never discuss it. (laughs) I know. Why did not they discuss that? (laughs) That seems odd that they wouldn't have said, you know... You know, at least you know how they talk. You know, hey man, you know I I really enjoyed working with you. Or yeah, right. they just kind of left that out. Did he have a Did he have a ma- a big role, Jamie? Do you Do you recall it? I know I saw the movie, but it was I, years ago.
0: Yeah, I don't think it's a big role because I don't think he's credited in the on the poster type thing. But it was you know certainly a speaking role. It wasn't like he was an extra or something.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that is odd. It's interesting to see, you know, they were both at the top of their game at the time. And it's interesting to see how they related to each other. And I enjoyed that interview very much.
0: Yeah, very much. It was very different from anything you would see on Johnny Carson, because it was much more casual. And, you know, of all things, Michael Jackson, the biggest, without question, the biggest guest you could get, wanders in.
1: (laughs) <laughs> and wanders out. <laughs> yeah, no, it was it was a uh, great great to go back down memory lane and uh, relive because I think about myself as a, y- a young woman back then watching those two artists, and they were definitely you know at the top of their game. So it's interesting to see it now and and go back and see them as young people who were just so driven and confident. You know, it, I mean, for Eddie to say, I don't ask anybody for advice. My God, especially mm-hmm. in your early 20s, to be able to, to say that is amazing. But he's yeah, done so and much appealing
0: more. too. like, I would gladly have a cup of coffee with either of them.
1: I agree. I agree. It was quite enjoyable.
0: So what do you think you want to move to our next segment? I think so. Give it a shot. Sure. So we have another um, another interview that we watched. Um, these early episodes we were not able to see in full. They're not on the Arsenio DVD collection that we got. So uh, Jim Henson is a guest. He comes out uh, to the Sesame Street theme they're playing, and he sits down to talk with with Arsenio. And for me, anyway, right away, I could hear Kermit's voice in Jim Henson's voice, and it took me back to the early days of Sesame Street, when Jim Henson was voicing Kermit. And, um, you know, he he became so associated with Kermit over the years.
1: Yeah, I mean, do you know that Sesame Street, because you mentioned Sesame Street, I digressed a little already. But do you know that that was that came about in 1969, the year that I, Natalie, was born? Um, Wow. (laughs) I know, I know, we're going back quite a ways. But um, yeah, no, I, I, I found it interesting. I I. You know, I don't know. I didn't know a lot about Jim Henson prior to watching this interview with, with, uh, Arsenio. Of course, I've heard of him. I've heard of the Muppets. I, you know, I grew up on Sesame Street, but I never really thought about his career and what, what he was, you know, how he lived his life. And it was just, uh, it was interesting to learn more about him. And, and I think it, I, I was struck by what he said about Muppets and how they come into, how they affect us culturally, that Muppets appeals. He said the Muppets appeal to the child and everyone, and I think that's true. I think that there's an innocence and an appeal that doesn't go away. And you can be ten years old or fifty years old, but if you watch the Muppets, if you watch Sesame Street, you you appreciate it, you like it, you laugh, it brings you joy. So, I was that that's what struck me about that interview when he said that when he talked about the Muppets and that and the appeal that they have to the general public. And he's amazing just everything about him is amazing. Just the way that he, uh, during the interview, the way that he just became Kermit and the way he became Ralph the dog. I was in awe of, of all of that. I'm in awe of puppetry as it is.
0: I know he was a, though Kermit and Ralph the dog were good guests for Arsenio, you know, as their own personalities. It was like he had Jim Henson plus two other personalities that night.
1: It's amazing. It's, he really does become the character. It's, it's almost freaky the way, you know, cause it, it's otherwise a man with 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 a, with, you know, with a with a puppet and moving his hand around. No, it he becomes a character. It comes alive. You know, it's just an, an amazing thing to watch. Yeah,
0: I, I remember as a kid, I would have to. Once I got old enough to really have a firm grip on fantasy versus reality, I would have to remind myself that, to consciously, that that's a puppet. That's not a, a Kermit that you're going to meet someday.
1: That's <laughs> <laughs> I know. It's amazing. Yeah, no, that interview. It was nice to 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 see that interaction with Arsenio, and I was I, I liked learning about how he evolved as as a as an artist when he said that he created Kermit thirty years ago using his mother's coat and um, mm-hmm. and that the. The original Kermit, because of course we think of Kermit Green Kermit, right? He's green, but the original Kermit was turquoise because his mother's coat was made. You know that was the color, and so you know it's just interesting to see how that how these characters evolve, and um, that you know that basically he's devoted his whole life to to puppetry. I mean he 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 started making puppets when he was in high school, so it's just amazing that that yeah,
0: it was a gift. I don't know if you noticed at the end too, they had, um, I don't know how they did this or really why, but they had off screen. If you remember, they had those two old man puppets that were on the Muppet Show in a balcony type situation and they were always heckling. Yes. <laughs> at the end of this interview, they had a little clip of the two of them heckling, like as if they were heckling Arsenio and Jim Henson. I didn't make much of it because I, it wasn't, they didn't show Statler and Waldorf. So I didn't think too much, but they did have them on there as as hecklers in the background. And then last week of all things, Saturday Night Live had a parody of those two old men puppets, the hecklers, Statler and Waldorf, um, as part of their main show. And, um, you know, the joke was that Keegan-Michael Key and the regular cast member from Saturday Night Live were playing bouncers and um, telling them to leave and uh, beating them up a bit because they wouldn't stop heckling. But, it made me think, why? I thought, why is this on Saturday Night Live? The Muppets right. haven't been on for ever, but then I remembered that uh, I believe, and you would know better than I do, that they're on Disney Plus.
1: Yeah, probably. I mean, there's a lot of stuff on Disney Plus, so that that would make sense that they, you know, that that, you know, that they're being, uh, if shows are being broadcast on a on a modern medium like D- Disney, the Disney app or Netflix, that that, you know, that then there would be some correlation between that and what's happening on, on, you know, on uh, Saturday Night Live.
0: Yeah. And I also thought, after I put that piece together, I thought, well, that that's good for the content, the really wonderful content that Jim Henson made, it gets to live on and a whole new generation is watching the Muppets. Of course, they're still watching Sesame Street, but the Muppets had its own place in time. Yeah, and
1: it's these are pretty timeless. I think like, the Muppets, this is timeless stuff. This is going to go on for 50 years more. You know, it's just, you know, it just doesn't lose its, its appeal. Um, I, I, I enjoyed learning about him as, as we, because we, you know, watched the show. I, I did look up some information about him and I, I enjoyed uh, learning about his life and what he's done. And I, I wondered what the attraction was early on for him with the puppets. And, One thing that I did read about him was that when he got his first TV, um, he thought that that was the biggest event of his adolescence. He can remember that. And that that's when he fell in love with different uh, TV, you know, puppet actors that were on during that time. Well, just like me,
0: then that TV was really important to him.
1: (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) exactly. (laughs) And uh, I also learned that his maternal grandmother was a painter, quilter, a needle worker. And I'm wondering if those, qual- you know, I, I just wonder, like, he was really close to her. And I wonder how that all comes into play. You know, he loved TV, he fell in love with the first, you know, TV puppets, you know, the early TV puppets of that time. And then his mom, his maternal grandmother was talented as far as painting and quilting and all of that, you know, how that just how it was sort of destined that he was, he would just make this a career that he would be a puppeteer. You know.
0: Yeah, I, you have to believe there's some connection there. If Even if it's just that the family is probably rewarding that type of creativity and praising her and uh, she's praising him when he expresses that. So I'm sure it had an impact.
1: Yeah, for sure. I was gonna say one thing that made me really uncomfortable during that interview, though, <laughs> was the yeah. whole thing between Kermit and Miss Piggy. So there was a oh really playful that was exchange. too R rated for you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, kind of that playful exchange <laughs> between Arsenio Hall and Jim Henson about uh, Miss Piggy and how you know. Well, at that point, Arsenio was talking to Kermit about Miss Piggy and what kind of relationship he had with Miss Piggy. And, uh, and then it, you know, and then it got heated, like, you know, Arsenio asking Kermit, you know, how far did you get, you know, with Miss Piggy, essentially, you know, like, have you kissed her? And then I don't know. And then it, then it, yeah, then I started to get uncomfortable (laughs) because I wanted to make sure this stayed PG rated because, you know, we're talking about the Muppets.
0: (laughs) Well. You have to know, though, that I'm pretty sure I heard that for The Muppets on Disney+, Plus there is a parental advisory at the beginning. They were not always PG 100%, even on their own. Oh, I guess I should have known that, but... No, no, you <laughs> wouldn't if you didn't, you know, watch it as an adult. And believe me, it's not uh, crazy, but I did watch a bunch of The Muppet shows as an adult, when I was recovering for, from some surgery, and it did strike me like,
1: okay, there's a lot in here for adults too. <laughs> right, right. So anyway, so that was, you know, that was playful, but I'm like, okay, let, let's get beyond this part now. Because <laughs> I don't know if like they're going to lose their fan base with Sesame Street or something. So it's like, uh, can we move on? And then luckily, I think like soon after that, they moved on to Ralph the dog. To and Ralph, I was yeah. Well,
0: I'm sorry you were uncomfortable. <laughs> <laughs>
1: and uh so yeah so it was uh what made
0: me uncomfortable was that uh the muppets after all these years are getting a second life on on disney plus and probably a whole maybe my nephew will even watch them and appreciate them like i did but we don't see arsenio shows anywhere on Mm -hmm. netflix or any plus anything hulu and i think it's because they were not preserved very well um you and i Bought a DVD of some shows, and they're not—they're not pristine. They're wa- very watchable, but they're not pristine quality. And I don't think there's any way to get all of his shows. We just have a small selection, which is too and bad. I think that because it, yeah, because it was a nightly show, because it was topical. You know, maybe he'd be joking about George Bush or or things of the day. They might have assumed that there was no life for it afterward. There was no real. Benefit to preserving the shows because who would watch them, you know, after the fact? And boy, that makes me sad to think of all that content just
1: yeah. Because there were a lot lost. of there were a lot of like really great, you know, charismatic actors during that period of time, and I'm sure they came, you know, they came on his show and and be. It's a shame to not be able to like have that that content preserved. It really is.
0: Yeah, and you know, just for him, he. As far as I can tell he did everything right in terms of he owned the show he was the producer he wrote the music he and to not have that legacy for the rest of his life it's just sad and it, it is he's not alone it happened over and over again it happens even in you know I've I've worked in publishing for a long time publishers don't always take care of the content that they bring to the world and I don't know why it's just that I guess there's so much involved in bringing something to the public that people don't put enough effort after the fact to preserving it.
1: Yeah, no, that is that is a shame, especially like knowing Arsenio and how funny he is and, you know, and uh, insightful he can be as well. So it, it it's a shame that, that some of the you know, that a lot of those shows are going to be lost to us.
0: That's why we're doing this. Yeah. We don't, don't want to lose it completely.
1: Exactly. Once upon a time.
0: So we know from our our research of the time, Ned, that uh, around 1989, Nelson Mandela was released from jail in South Africa, and the um, institution of apartheid began to be dismantled.
1: Yes. It's such an important year. So many things. I mean, as we're heading into 90s, such a momentous thing is happening in our history that we're ending the cruel, you know, that cruel system of apartheid. So... But yep
0: not not to take away at all that was a a tremendous um development that was on the news all the time. We were very aware of it and today there's something that I wonder if you've heard of called
1: the Mandela effect. Mm, I've heard of it, but I don't know that I know all the specifics what what is t- talk to me about the Mandela effect so the Mandela effect
0: uh, actually ties back to my story at the top of this episode about Jim Henson. what it is is. When Nelson Mandela died, it was probably uh, mid 2000s, I want to say like, and a number of people felt that something was wrong with that piece of news. They saw Nelson Mandela had died on the news and they thought, what do you mean he died? I'm positive that he died in the early 90s. How can this be? Has my timeline shifted? Are people lying to me? What What can this be? And there were so many people so concerned that they actually found each other online and they were sharing that they remembered seeing Nelson Mandela's funeral uh, in the 90s and, and what could this be and blah, blah, blah. And they eventually discovered that, um, a concluded, I should say, that what people saw in the early 90s was a lot of coverage of Nelson Mandela getting out of prison, working with F.W. de Klerk, all kinds of ceremonial things. And in their young minds... They must have interpreted that as the attention you would get when you die. He was on TV so frequently and with with such ceremony that in their minds, that was his death.
1: Wow, what an interesting connection to have made in your brain. (laughs) I know.
0: And it's interesting, right, that it's a number of people, not just one person. So they found that there are a few different topics that you can explore with people probably our age and maybe a little younger where they... They remember something a certain way and it, it just turns out to be a false memory. It's just wrong, but it's very hard to convince them of it, of anything different because they their memory is so strong. That's so that's called the Mandela effect when that happens. And I only recently discovered that I had a Mandela effect
1: incident in my own life. <laughs> that's not, okay, let's get into the specifics of that. <laughs>
0: I, if we had not done this podcast, I don't think I ever would have discovered this false memory. So you remember that I told you in the story that in spring 1989, Father Howard uh, took us aside, told us about Jim Henson's death and sang Rubber Ducky. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, obviously that happened. I'm not crazy. I know when I was a student of Father Howard's, I know that I sang Rubber Ducky. I didn't imagine all that. However... (laughs) (laughs) When I started to put together some notes for the show, I realized, huh, Jim Henson is on Arsenio Hall in 1989, right around the time that I studied with Father Howard. When exactly did he die? So I looked it up and I found that he died the following year. Still a very sad story. He died suddenly from bacterial pneumonia. Super sad a shocking death. Very sad for him and his family. However, did not happen in 1989 when I know I had Father Howard for that class. So I I believe- All right, but
1: hold on, Jamie. I don't want to like, but is it possible that your class with Father Howard was in 1990 and not in 1989?
0: No, because you
1: recall that since I'm a nerd, I ordered my transcript- For this podcast? (laughs) Oh, she ordered her transcripts. (laughs) All right. She's got concrete evidence.
0: (laughs) Even so, I would have kind of known because he was Father Howard was just like my first introduction to BC. So I knew he was in my first year. Uh, So that wasn't it. And the only thing I can conclude is that you mentioned Sesame Street started in 1969 and this was in 1989. So I suspect that Father Howard was commemorating the 20th anniversary of Sesame Street.
1: And not Jim Henson's death. Oh, you know what? You're probably right. But man, oh, man, yep. that Mandela effect is something because you you were convinced That that was the reason why all these years that that Father Howard told you, you know, that (laughs) that this was a tribute. And because he had died, it's amazing that you thought this all this time. Your transcripts were like the proof that you were wrong.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I didn't even really have to look at the transcripts. Like, I got them for another reason. I just kind of wanted to know. Actually, I got them because I realized... I took this class called Idea of Insanity and I had no memory of it. So I wanted to see what I scored in the class. But anyway.
1: um, (laughs) Oh,
0: boy. (laughs) I think that what happened was that Father Howard thing occurred. And then the following year, Jim Henson died. And that actually would have been a big story because he he wouldn't go to the hospital. He was convinced he could just work through it. And he tragically ended up dying. And the doctor said that if he had gone six hours earlier, they could have saved him. So I think that made an impression on me in 1990. And I took that memory and squashed it together with the memory from a year earlier.
1: That's amazing. Wow. I know. Imagine learning that you all this time that you were, that basically you were, that that was your own little (laughs) Nelson Mandela effect going on right there. But I think we all... There's different ways that we do that. Uh, I don't know that I can recall one for myself, but I'm sure I've done it too. I'm sure I have. Maybe in the course of this podcast, we'll discover one. We might. Yeah, we might discover (laughs) one. Good story. Good, good, good uh, discovery. Let's just say.
0: Yes. Yeah. I'm glad I could at least come up with something that Father Howard would have been a reason for him to be doing that. Otherwise it would have been kind of mysterious, but. <laughs> All right. So I guess I'll see you for this time around next time. We've got a couple of episodes from our DVD. So we'll be a little bit more uh, coherent. I suppose we'll have full episodes to talk about, not just clips.
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, among the people we will be discussing in the interviews, we'll have a look at our uh, Sammy Davis jr. And Muhammad Ali.
1: Mm, Should be interesting discussion for sure.
0: Yeah, looking forward to it. All right, great. That's all, folks. See you next time. See ya. Bye. Since we started doing this podcast I, anyway, started following Arsenio on social media. He's reasonably active He's not not like some celebrities where he's posting every minute, but it's been fun to follow him, and we also know that In his comedy special, he says that he thinks Twitter is a little scary because it can be very mean. People can say very negative things and have an anonymous account and they don't even have to be your friend or like related. So we want to show Arsenio that Twitter, in fact, can be used for good. And for each episode of our podcast, we're posting a graphic tweet on our Twitter account and that account is Podsenio, P-O-D, Senio. Take a look at our account and retweet these. So that we create a little buzz for Arsenio. Sounds awesome. That's great. And even, of course, if you want to at mention him, um, that would be really cool. Because then he'll know that he has a a fan base that really appreciates things he did in the 90s. For example, this show after the L.A. riots. Yeah, that's awesome. Create some buzz. See where that leads. I don't know if you watched last week or so, maybe two weeks ago. Arsenio was substitute hosting for Ellen.
1: Yes, I heard that. Which is great. I know. And I saw like, him and I'd, I thought. I wouldn't even, you know, I wouldn't have even thought he was in the running. Like, so it, yeah. it makes me happy to know that he was chosen and that people think about him.
0: I think he must have like a new agent or something because he did Jim, <laughs> Jimmy Kimmel and Good. then Ellen. I thought if he were going to do this again, I think daytime would be the place. And the audience that Ellen has, I think, would respond
1: well to him. Yeah, that'd be cool. I don't know. I do like, maybe because I'm just used to the idea that it, he was a night night show host and that he might get a little racier at night. And so that might True. be more, you know, like, so I, I so I, I'm kind of like, yeah, maybe, you know, he, I, he can do well during the day or night, but it's just, I'm used to thinking about him at night. But hey, I'd be happy if he's on air. It doesn't matter when. Well, Ellen is retiring next year.
0: Oh, I think there's a pretty good possibility that he could take that spot. That would
1: be wonderful
0: because he substituted, I think, for like a whole week. I felt like maybe he was on trial, you know?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think that anytime they ask anybody to do that, it, there's a bit of a trial going on to see. So like,
0: let's all use Twitter to ramp up this buzz. Like, how about tweeting to The Ellen Show some of our graphics? I think that sure. would be very be helpful. Wonderful. Yeah. I don't know in my saner moments i think that uh, that i'm incapable of uh, starting a viral campaign but hey you got to try stuff you know you never know you <laughs> never know remember podsenio we found the recording of the green line train on freesound.org thank you to craig hagen this concludes our broadcast day good night and god bless america